I don't see how we get past this without a massive, massive crisis. Fantastic. Just what we need. A massive, massive crisis. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. <laughs> I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, Radio Sputnik, Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. Uh, coming up, the fight. The fight continues for citizen-overseeable elections, specific, uh, specifically election results. That fight continues, at least it does at bradblog.com, uh, but yes, it continues on Twitter, it continues in my email feed, it continues on Facebook as I continue to hear from people who are concerned about election results, both past and future. You know, we're one of the few shows that actually talks about these issues. I I appreciate people are talking about uh, President Trump's fake voter fraud commission this week uh but uh, it is fake it is all about voter suppression in fact but the fact is what almost no one is talking about is whether we can trust our results so i will continue to talk about this issue and it's not by the way whether we can trust it it's whether we can oversee our results and we certainly cannot oversee the results in georgia where an election contest lawsuit is now pending challenging the results of that June 20 U.S. House special election in Georgia's 6th District. That's the most expensive U.S. House election in American history, and yet it was run on 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, about which, frankly, Democrats and Republicans alike uh, should have great concerns and do have great concerns about those results. Um, but it's that sort of election that we have been warning about here on uh, on the broadcast and at bradblog.com for more than a decade now. And as my guest coming up will explain, uh, we have been reporting on it and covering it for very good reason. 
Uh, all right. Uh, an important uh, and at times breathtaking Oval Office interview was published last night between Donald Trump and New York Times reporters Peter Baker, Michael Schmidt and Maggie Haberman uh, in an exclusive interview in the Oval Office uh, in which D Donald Trump suggested to varying degrees and specificity that he may well end up firing or at least with, would be within his legal and political rights to fire the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, the acting head of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, and uh, the uh, special counsel overseeing the Trump-Russia investigation, former FBI Director Robert Mueller. All of them, all of them, and all of that related in various ways to the ongoing and still broadening investigations of Team Trump. And all of that in and of itself is absolutely stunning and disconcerting um, and suggests that one way or another, we are likely headed smack dab into an extraordinary constitutional crisis in the days ahead in some form or another. Just what we need in it, Desi Doyen. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 rather stunning. Yeah. The uh, the revelations that continue to pour out like a volcano. It's I, I don't know where this goes. His comments here. Nobody does. But it uh, goes in uh, nowhere that is good. Uh, former Justice Department uh, spokesman under Barack Obama, a guy by the name of Matt Miller, was asked about this. Uh, after the Times interview was published last night, um, particularly about uh, essentially the president's threats to fire everyone at the very top of our nation's uh, law enforcement system, the AG, the deputy AG, the acting head of the FBI, the, uh, the special counsel. Um, so Matt Miller was asked about this after the uh, Times interview was published and whether he thought it was conceivable that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, or Rod Rosenstein, his deputy AG, could stand up to the president here and uh, say, no, Mr. President, uh, this is none of your business. Law enforcement needs to be independent of the White House. Well, today we know that Jeff Sessions certainly won't do that. Most folks would have resigned after what Donald Trump said about about Jeff Sessions in that Times interview. I mean, he just slammed him. Everyone's been talking about it today, so I don't need to go into details there. But uh, today, J Jeff Sessions, because I guess he has no self-respect whatsoever, said, oh, I'm fine with that. I'll, I'll stay. No reason. No reason for me to step down. No reason for me to leave. But there was this uh, these disturbing comments from Matt Miller as to whether anybody would be able to stand up for the supposed independence of the Department of Justice and the serious constitutional crisis that Matt Miller seems to now be predicting for the near future. It's really incumbent on Sessions and Rosenstein. They have to remember, they swore an oath not to the president, but to the Constitution. Um, they're there to serve the American public, not to serve Donald Trump, and they're supposed to protect their institutions from independence. This is, you know, the, when, when he fired Jim Comey, that was a red line that he crossed, and they failed that test then. They were supposed to stand up for the department's independence then and push back against the president, and they didn't do it. This is another big test for them, and it's another big test for the institution. Are they going to allow Donald Trump to trample all over the independence of the investigation and of yes. the Justice Department? Yes. Are they going to stand up and say, this isn't the way the system works in no, America? And if they don't do it, there's no one left in the executive branch to do it. It will have to come from Congress. Matt, I will just ask one quick last question before we go. You wrote, that, uh, you wrote recently, several days ago, that something like this might happen. Um, 
given your prescience that the president has just done this, do you know what happens next? <laughs> uh, I think we're headed for a massive clash. Uh, it's clear Donald Trump uh, is not going to respect this investigation. I don't think it's a coincidence that he launched this attack after the investigation got close to his son. We found out yesterday that, that, that Bob Mueller is looking at his son. He's made clear now if they look at him personally, if they look at his finances personally, um, he's going to respond. I, I don't see how we get past this without um, him firing either Mueller or firing other people at the Justice Department and a massive, massive crisis. Oh, that's not ominous at all. Yeah. So there you can look forward to that. Uh, in this uh, in this Times interview, uh, which was broad, covered a bunch of topics where the president uh, often rambled at times. Uh, frankly, he was incomprehensible in some of these remarks. Uh, the reporters also touched on the fact that uh, Trump seems to believe that he may be able to restructure the Department of Justice on his own so that the head of the FBI... The new one, which he's uh, just nominated uh, to replace James Comey, the old one that he fired, uh, so that that head of the FBI would then report directly to him, to the president, to Donald Trump at the White House, rather than to the attorney general at the Department of Justice, which is the way it is now, which is the way it has been for years. So that in and of itself is also remarkably troubling. And by the way, it's inaccurate. It's historically incorrect, the assertions that uh, Trump made. But there's a lot of people talking about that. Um, I want to get to sort of this aspect. You know, uh, Miller says there that um, that these people, uh, Sessions and uh, Rosenstein and so forth, are supposed to protect the Constitution. They need to protect our institutions. Well, you know who else is supposed to protect our institutions? The media. That's why the media are given constitution, constitutional dispensation. Uh, for uh, freedom of the press. But that with that also comes responsibility. And for all the time that Haberman and Schmidt and Baker uh, of The New York Times uh, had with Donald Trump in that very rare interview and what has become an in increasingly rare interview opportunity, they dropped the ball, really, when it comes to this huge ongoing fight that you may have noticed going on in D.C. in recent weeks. You know, this fight that could result in tens of millions of Americans losing all access to health care coverage. A result, by the way, that uh, Donald Trump has repeatedly advocated in favor of. I realize it's not as much fun as as politics and process and palace intrigue. But it seems to me that the literal fate of millions of Americans, many of whom could simply die, Thanks to the president's strong advocacy here, if this uh, Republican health care, if any version of the Republican health care bill is passed, it seems like that should be a, a, at least as important to The New York Times reporters as the latest self-made political crisis facing this president and his team of corrupt facilitators. And the political process for the Trump GOP camp to pass any kind of health care reform bill at all. It's all about the process. They did talk about it a little bit with Trump, but it was all about the process. Matt Gertz, writing over at Media Matters, notes that The Times missed out on an opportunity to get Trump to answer questions about health care policy. There was certainly a need for such an interrogation, he writes. The interview came just days after the Senate health care bill collapsed because conservatives and more moderate Republicans could not reach an agreement on the legislation's contours. Trump has been very vague about which side uh, which side's policy views he favors here between the 
the moderate side and the uh, far right side of the Republican Party. He supported the Senate legislation, even though it violates many of the promises that he has made to the American people, such as his promise to not touch Medicaid. Um, Trump has taken all kinds of positions uh, on on health care and on what to do next. And as Gertz notes, based on the uh, the long excerpts from the interview that the paper published, uh, even though they admit several off the record uh, comments and asides, the Times reporters made no effort whatsoever to get any of those contradictions from Donald Trump's health care positions sorted out. Or, as he writes, to elucidate for their audience the type of policies that Trump actually favors. Millions of people will be impacted by the results of this debate. And yet the Times reporters, he, he notes, seem primarily concerned with, you know, which senators will and won't vote on it. He lists just uh, some of the uh, uh, of the questions that the Times reporters asked Trump about this, none of them about the actual policy. Instead, uh, for example, did the senators want to try again? How about the last meeting with Republican senators about health care in June? Do you guys remember how many came to that meeting? Who's the key guy here? Where does it go from here, do you think? How's uh, Senator uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to work with? I mean, they were all process questions. This is nothing crazy. about the policy. I know. And this is the New York Times. They have access to that guy. I don't. I, you know, this is one of the reasons why we've been spending so much time over recent weeks explaining exactly what this Republican uh, health care scheme would or wouldn't do. Questions about health care were almost entirely driven by the process and politics of the bill, writes Gertz. The closest they came to ask about policy was uh, Maggie Haberman's vague question about whether Trump is, quote, generally of the view that people should have health care. Trump responded, yes, yes. And then the conversation immediately moved on. Wow. That was it. Wow. There were, uh, he says, some tantalizing openings for the reporters to quiz Trump on his health care policy views that simply were not taken. At one point, Trump said about Obamacare, quote, once you get something for pre-existing conditions, et cetera, et cetera, once you get something, it's awfully tough to take it away. A reporter then could have followed up and asked why, in spite of the political challenge, that Trump believes there's a policy imperative to remove the guarantee and, and, and to limit the ability of people with pre-existing conditions to get coverage. Or why he seems to be in favor of uh, removing uh, Medicaid coverage from so many people. Trump also said, and this was this is an amazing quote, Trump said, uh, quote, because you are basically saying from the moment the insurance, you're 21 years old, you start working and you're paying $12 a year for insurance, and by the time you're 70, you get a nice plan. Here's something where you walk up and say, I want my insurance. It's a very tough deal, but it is something we're doing a good job of. I'm not sure he understands what insurance is. That's uh, kind of incomprehensible. And it appears that he is confusing health insurance with life insurance. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that that, that almost sounds like that's a what, term life insurance description. But I mean, that's that's 
It's important that the president understand how basic policies work. As you say, millions of people will be affected by this. And if he doesn't understand how it works, then what did you call them? Uh, uh, corrupt facilitators? Uh, yeah. Corrupt facilitators can put anything in front of him and he'll sign it. Gertz uh, says uh, it, it, it's a staggering display of ignorance because that's how, in fact, term life insurance works, oh, not health go. insurance. And he notes uh, what's more uh, staggering is that there was no follow-up questions by the uh, by the official by the uh, reporters after hearing this description of insurance that sounds a hell of a lot like life insurance, not health insurance. Later on, Trump is quoted by the Times as saying, "Quote: This health care is a tough deal. I said it from the beginning. Number one, you know, a lot of the papers were saying actually these guys couldn't believe it. How much I know about it." How much I know about health care. Oh, I don't think that's what they were saying. <laughs> they might have been. Uh, well, I don't know who he's. I think I he was talking about the Republicans he was meeting <laughs> mm, with. But okay. um, I, I mean, frankly, the only thing worse than a president or or anyone who doesn't know what they're actually talking about is a president or anyone who doesn't know what they're talking about, but thinks they do know what they're talking about. <laughs> oh. And that's what we have here with Trump. God. Trump also said of, uh, about passing health care legislation, if we don't get it done, we're going to watch Obamacare go down the tubes and we'll blame the Democrats. That, of course, would have been a good chance to point out that uh, experts say that Obamacare is not at all failing. In fact, it is doing better than ever, including, by the way, for the health insurance companies who are making more profits than ever for good or, or bad. I'd say bad, but the point being that it's not failing as Trump and Republicans continue to say over and over again. Um, you know, they did not ask uh, why his administration is taking these st uh, steps to ensure the systems decline or discuss the impact that Obamacare uh, failing would have on the American people who depend on that legislation. Instead, the uh, reporter there, Peter Baker, just asked, did the senators want to try again? It's it's amazing. And Trump has not been doing interviews at almost at all. He has given only one press conference since he has taken office. And so here the New York Times get this chance and and, and they just blow it. They you know, they got a lot of good stuff, important stuff on the on the Justice Department and all of that, which, you know, Trump admitted to kind of on his own. But uh, on this health care debate that could affect millions of people, nothing. It reminds me of during the campaign, frankly, when the media was obsessed with process, mm -hmm. but not policy. And nobody heard about Hillary Clinton's policies, for example, because they were so obsessed with how the process and the jockeying back and forth was going. So this is just, uh, you know, one of the reasons this kind of failure by the corporate media, why, you know, why we have spent so much time on this show in the past few weeks and months trying to explain what the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, actually does and doesn't. And what the various Republican plans to replace it would and wouldn't do and the remarkable pain uh, that it would cause for so many Americans if you simply got rid of it the way the Republicans are talking uh, about doing here. Uh, you know, the way they've been talking about fulfilling their campaign pledges when they've been pretending that Obamacare was somehow hurting people. 
Trump and the Republicans are, are, are now the dog that finally caught up to the bus and they have no idea what to do now that they have other than to keep pretending, even if it means millions of Americans will end up suffering in the bargain so that they can save political face in some fashion. It's frankly, it's disgraceful. And the corporate media should be the ones making that clear since it's their constitutionally protected job to, to do so, to help inform and educate the electorate. Uh, so in any event, uh, given the sad news uh, from last night concerning uh, Senator John McCain of Arizona, uh, the GOP fight now to harm millions of Americans is likely to become even more difficult now. Uh, and it is uh, sad news. Uh, he has, uh, I'm sure you've heard, uh, John McCain has been diagnosed with brain cancer, a particularly aggressive uh, form akin to the form of the disease that ultimately killed Ted Kennedy back during the back during the Democrats fight, ironically enough, to enact the Affordable Care Act back in 2009, 2010. The loss of Kennedy at the time also made it very difficult, uh, even more difficult for Democrats to push uh, Obamacare through back uh, back then uh, without Kennedy after he was replaced by a Republican uh, senator. Uh, McCain and, and Kennedy were, were close. They were rivals, uh, but they respected each other a great deal. Um, Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama, uh, who ran against John McCain, it was his presidential opponent in 2008, tweeted that John McCain is an American hero and one of the bravest fighters I've ever known. Cancer doesn't know what it's up against. Give it hell, John. Uh, McCain tweeted on Thursday, he said, I greatly appreciate the outpouring of support. Unfortunately for my sparring partners in Congress, I'll be back soon. <laughs> so stand by. Uh, whether that turns out to be the case or not, uh, we will have to wait and see. This is a, 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 a pretty aggressive form of cancer. Uh, average uh, lifespan after a diagnosis is about 14 months. I think uh, Ted Kennedy survived 15 months with it before he he succumbed. So um, also, I, I should say, uh, you know, McCain has been an important, uh, if imperfect, voice in the Senate against torture uh, based on his own experiences with it as a prisoner of war during the uh, during Vietnam. And so voices like his in that regard, especially with this president and the lack of accountability for torturers under the previous president. uh that sort of voice is, is still much needed. So uh, we wish him all the best. And um, so, you know, it's unclear how this is going to affect the fight for health care. But what we do know is that, um, well, yesterday we were able to report that the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office found that the current plan that Senate Republicans are now pushing uh, to basically repeal Obamacare entirely uh, without having a replacement, that that would result in 32 million Americans losing access to health care, 17 million next year alone. That's the plan that uh, McConnell has been uh, promised that they will vote on at some point next week that Trump has been advocating for. Uh, and now uh, today, the revised repeal and replace plan that Republicans revealed last week that has uh, they promised to vote on that as well, <clears throat> uh, at least until four Republican senators came out against it. That plan has also now been scored by the CE CBO that will leave 22 million more Americans 
uninsured. So it, it kind of seems like, uh, you know, <laughs> with millions of Americans one way or another standing to lose their health care, no matter which way Republicans move forward and Donald Trump moves forward, kind of seems like the Times would have wanted to ask, you know, the president about that and about those Americans who would be without health care. Imagine if an insurance company was being forced for some reason to shut down and that it would cost 22 to 32 million Americans access to health care. The Senate would be working to avoid such a crisis, I should think, at least in theory. Now they're actually falling over themselves to create such a crisis. I, I, I think it's just remarkable. Uh, and by the way, uh, we now have reports from uh, The Hill, a source uh, reporting at the Hill that uh, Senate leaders are now offering some $200 billion to win over moderates to vote for, well, I guess one or more of these plans that would take health care away from, oh, you know, just 22 to 32 million Americans. All of this, uh, if the electorate actually understood it, uh, seems to me like it should be a great cause of worry for Republicans who are facing election next year. But they don't seem to be very concerned about that for some strange reason. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, and uh, some of the possible reasons for that next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. According to the Middle East Monitor's memo, Israel's National Cyber Authority is expected to recommend the manual counting, that would be hand counting, of votes in future elections in Israel in order to prevent cyber attacks following recent attempts to meddle with elections in the West, according to the Israeli newspaper Haaretz yesterday. Formed 18 months ago, the National Cyber Authority is working on a defense plan against possible meddling in Israeli elections through cyber attacks, similar to what recently took place in the U.S., in France, in Ukraine. The plan will recommend that votes continue to be counted manually in Israel, as they always have, even if this is, quote, according to uh, Haaretz, outdated, an outdated method. However, Haaretz notes... Other aspects of the election campaign and preparations for Election Day are also exposed to cyber attacks and need protection. Citing cyber experts, the paper reports that Israel is aware that there are countries and groups that seek to disrupt Israeli elections, and there is a growing risk that they might succeed in their endeavor. The Cyber Authority will, con will coordinate its defense preparations with the Central Election Committee and guide parties and logistics organizations associated with the elections 
on how to identify and protect themselves from cyber penetration, according to Haaretz. So that's Israel. They seem to get it. Israel joins most of the world's democracies in hand-counting paper ballots so that voters can know who actually won or lost an election. You recall in the Netherlands uh, in recent months for their recent election, they moved back from optically scanned paper ballots to hand-counted, hand-marked paper ballots for similar reasons to that Israel is sticking with them. The U.S., however, is very slow to get that picture, despite concerns about hacking last November, including, as we discussed earlier this week, 150,000 hack attempts on Election Day alone in South Carolina, according to a report this week from Wall Street Journal. And South Carolina wasn't even a particularly contested uh, state last year. That's on top of attempts to hack into voter registration systems around the country, including successful attempts reportedly in states like Illinois and Arizona last year. And yet, despite all of the professed concerns about hacking, the Department of Homeland Security and the intelligence community and Democrats continue to insist that no vote totals were changed last year in the presidential election. That despite the fact that, as the DHS was recently forced to admit, and by the way, as we have been telling you on this show since Election Day, neither they nor anybody else actually bothered to count the paper ballots, at least where they exist, to find out if the computer scanners and tabulators were correct, nor did the Department of Homeland Security bother to examine a single electronic voting machine or tabulator before telling everybody that the results, as reported, were accurate last year. They were just making that up. They continue to just make it up when they say no votes were changed. Some locations around the U.S., however, seem to be figuring at least some of this out. For years, Denton, Texas, Denton County, Texas, has forced voters to vote on unverifiable direct recording electronic machines, DREs, uh, usually touchscreens, but in, in this case, there's a little wheel that they use instead of a touchscreen on those systems down there in Denton. There is no way to know that even one vote ever cast on such a device during an election uh, has ever been recorded accurately. But they have been forcing voters in Denton and other Texas counties to use them for years anyway. Now, after a disastrous November election in Denton County, According to the Texas Tribune, Denton County's elections administrator is looking forward this fall to when he will implement the county's newest voting plan, a complete return to paper ballots. Yay. Finally, I got to say something nice about Texas. Uh, the move sets Denton, uh, the ninth largest county in Texas and one of the fastest growing, apart from the state's other biggest counties, which all use some form of unverifiable electronic voting, according to Texas Tribune. But county officials recently approved spending just shy of $9 million to buy new voting equipment from Austin-based Hart Inner Civic, that will return to an entirely paper-based system in time for this November's election. The move comes months after a disastrous election day for Denton County last November, with machines inadvertently set to test mode instead of election mode, long lines, ultimately incorrect tabulations. 
Voters in town, as well as leaders with the local Democratic and Republican parties, finally called for a return to paper ballots in the months following Election Day there. Other counties in Texas have moved in the opposite direction to full digital voting systems. Bear County, for example, uh, their election administrator, Jackie Callanan, said voters, quote, absolutely love the all-electronic systems that have been in place since 2002 there. In counties like Bear, paper balloting is used only for mail-in ballots. But anyway, some good news there in Denton County, Texas. Uh, but that's just one county in Texas, and they still will rely on computers to count those paper ballots. But, you know, hey, uh, at least they have paper ballots. Remarkably, that is still not the case in many places around the country, like the entire state of Georgia, for instance, which held the most expensive U.S. House race in U.S. history last month, that special election between Democrat John Ossoff and Republican and former Georgia Secretary of State Karen Handel. In that contest, despite Ossoff leading in virtually every pre-election poll by anywhere from one to seven points, Ossoff ultimately was said to have lost to the Republican Handel by four points on the state's 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems. It was a system that we have since learned that was made even more vulnerable than usual, if that's possible, because the Kennesaw State University Center for Elections, which has for years been contracted by the state of Georgia to program all voting tabulation and uh, voter registration systems in the state and to ensure the cybersecurity of those systems, Kennesaw State itself had been found vulnerable to hacking with some 15 gigabytes of voter data and passwords to the voting system left on an unprotected web server at least since last August, August of 2016. When it was discovered by a cybersecurity researcher last year, uh, that, that, uh, that data that was just sitting out there in the open, the head of Kennesaw State's Center for Election Systems uh, instructed that man, Logan Lamb, to keep it to himself and not even tell the Secretary of State before seven months passed and it was discovered that the same data was still available on the unsecured site. That's the system that was used for the most expensive U.S. House race in history just weeks ago in Georgia's 6th Congressional District, the one with the surprising ending where the Democrat lost on those unverifiable systems, despite winning, by the way, by a nearly two to one margin on the only verifiable paper ballots in the race, the paper ballots used for absentee voting in Georgia. And that's just part of the reason why a number of voters and an election integrity group have now filed a lawsuit contesting the results of that Georgia race and demanding the Georgia Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, examine their systems and look at moving to a paper ballot system. Writing recently at bradblog.com just uh, days ago, legal analyst Ernie Canning quoted Georgia Tech computer scientist Richard DeMilo regarding the myriad security issues revealed during the course of last month's U.S. House special election. DeMilo said, I worry that what we have here in Georgia is the Titanic effect. Georgia officials are convinced the state's election system cannot be breached. 
Shades of the unsinkable ship, he says. They have neglected to give us lifeboats, a fail-safe system designed so that in case of catastrophe, Georgia voters can easily verify that reported vote totals match voter intent. It is the sort of common-sense approach that first-year engineering students learn, he says. Other states have that capability inexplicably. Georgia does not. DeMilo said that in a statement that was quoted in support of that legal challenge contesting the unverifiable results of the June 20 special U.S. House election. That case is still pending, but unfortunately, it's not the only election with questionable results over the years in Georgia, not by a long shot. In his article, Why Do Georgia Election Officials Insist on 100% Unverifiable Elections? Ernie Canning worked back through more than a decade of problems and concerns about Georgia elections and our reporting on them and uh, on, on both them and Georgia's unverifiable Diebold touchscreen systems. He writes about that at bradblog.com in his analysis of the uh, U.S. House election contest that has now been filed in Georgia. Joining us now to discuss all of the above is Ernie Canning. Uh, he is uh, Brad Blog's long-serving, perhaps I should say long-toiling legal analyst. He's a retired attorney, author, Vietnam vet, and during the presidential campaign, he served as a senior advisor to veterans for Bernie. Ernie Canning, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. How you doing, Brad? Oh, you know, given that introduction, I suppose you can guess how I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> but we, we've got some maybe some good-ish news here, Ernie, to start, uh, some good news of a, of a sort. Kennesaw State Center for Election Systems has now been essentially fired? Well, not quite. They entered a, an $835,000 contract to supposedly transition the system between now and the next election over to the um, uh, to the Secretary of State's office mm -hmm. making it in-house. Um, uh, so uh, I guess that's, that's the response to this massive data breach that they had, but uh, they're that getting, doesn't they're mean getting... the system's going to be any more secure uh, when it's moved over to the Secretary of State's office. No, they're, yeah, they're, they're being paid essentially for being fired, I guess, uh, and now it will be handled at least by Georgia itself, where maybe, theoretically, there may be a possibility for some more type of public oversight. But now that means, as, as you sort of hint there, Ernie, uh, Secretary of State Brian Kemp, uh, he's running for governor, I believe, uh, next year. This means that uh, he, he and his own office will oversee and will count his own election for governor next year? Well, and, and if you go back into some of the stuff that you know I covered here and that, that mm -hmm. uh, occurred with the when they first brought Diebold into uh, Georgia in 2002, where one of the uh, Diebold contractors uh, turned whistleblower, Chris Hood, said that you know they took over the whole system and uh, what they did, the, the president of Diebold told them to install this patch on uh, on the memory cards, mm -hmm. and what we've learned is that uh, a a single malicious actor can in install, it. all you need is less than a minute's uh, uh, direct access to one of these Diebold machines using a memory card. You can insert a, a virus that will flip the vote and then erase itself after the election so that uh, it's undetectable. We, there's no way to know whether the result that's ultimately reported on the machines is what it is. And what really troubles me with that potential and with uh, 
uh, with the Secretary of State now running for governor, it should kind of think of it uh, uh, if your uh, St. Louis Cardinals were playing my Dodgers in the uh, in the playoffs, uh-huh. uh, I think your manager would get a little upset if all the umpires were actually coaches from the Dodgers. <laughs> and it's actually a little worse than that because this can be done in pro- the guy you're entrusting to uh, to oversee this and make sure nothing happens. And you know this whole thing about Russian hackers; it could be anybody that hacks it from mm-hmm. the outside, or more importantly, it could be an insider that that flip, undetectably flips the vote. And here you've got the guy running for governor. His own office is going to be uh, overseeing this in secret. I wouldn't be real comfortable if I was his opponent. Well, and it's uh, it's it's in secret uh, because it's in truth it's in secret to everyone. There's no way to know on those touchscreen systems whether anyone whether any of those votes were counted accurately. Now you've been having uh, Ernie. Uh, in the wake of this article, and I want to go through some of the details here because it's kind of breathtaking, even though a lot of the stuff, you know, are things that I reported at, at Brad Blog over the years. And you sort of pulled it all together in this comprehensive, nearly comprehensive uh, timeline that that is even troubling to me uh, uh, to look back over the last you know 15 years or so of my reporting here. So I want to talk about that in a second. But you've been having this back and forth. With one of the uh, reporters at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and of course that's a a, a big paper there, well-respected paper uh, in Georgia. Uh, You've been having a back and forth with one of their reporters here who does not seem to even understand these concerns, does not understand... Really, it seems uh, even why the, the the lawsuit was filed, this election contest was filed in this U.S. House race. Tell me about that back and forth you've had with that reporter. Well, it, it actually goes back to what I find is one of the most exciting things about this lawsuit. I mean, the lawsuit challenges the results of the uh, of the sixth district uh, election, but more importantly, uh, they're relying on a, a provision in the in the Georgia Constitution. That said, basically, they're arguing that pe- people have a right to have a verifiable count. And what happens is uh, uh, the Secretary of State and other election officials tell this woman, oh, well, you know, we haven't been compromised, and there's no proof that, uh, that, the, that uh, someone, in fact, hacked or rigged the, the actual count. Well, that's true, but you can't prove that the actual account is valid either. There's no scientific way to do it. So that when the Secretary of State says uh, uh, that, uh, you know, when, when they present these official counts, hey, that could be anything, you know. And, and the only one who would really know if it was rigged would be somebody who actually took part in rigging the vote, right. you know, inserting the software to give them the percentage result they want. So uh, there's no way to know one way or another. And that's the, the, the legal standard that the attorneys are asserting in this case is very much like the legal standard applied in, uh, that applied by the German Supreme Court in 2009, where they're basically saying that, you know, uh, elections require transparency, and if you don't have a transparent count and can't verify that the result is accurate, then the result is invalid. And that, that's something that, to me, is, is maddening. We've been uh, talking earlier in the show about the failure of the, of the corporate media to, to, serve, uh, to serve the electorate, to serve the voters. And here you have the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who has been covering Georgia elections since these terrible systems were put in place back in 2002. And they don't even seem to make it clear to their own voters when you have a contest like this, uh, you know, that... 
what seems to me to be a very simple premise to say there's no evidence that the election was manipulated. And by the way, it's not just manipulation. It's also error. I mean, these machines fail all the time. We find that out when it's uh, a paper ballot system sometimes. Um, but it's impossible to really to find out, you know, if if the, the results were just in error because of bad programming uh, on these unverifiable systems. And the fact that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution can't seem that their own reporters can't seem to get that across, or at least to, not not just to voters, but don't even seem to understand it themselves after, what, 15 years of this system? Well, one of the problems, Brad, I think it, it goes to journalism. You know, there's a, a major difference between journalism and stenography. And when you simply take what uh, officials, whether it be election officials, any other government officials, at face value and report what they say without any analysis of its validity, that's being a stenographer, not a journalist. And uh, when, for example, in, in her earlier article, she, she had quoted, she links to it in this one, mm-hmm. but she had quoted, uh, 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 you know, what Brian Kemp was, was claiming. In the later article, where she's talking about the, the matter being transferred, she links to the early article and just makes the bold statement, there is no evidence that the state system has been compromised. Well, it clearly was compromised. You had uh, uh, Logan Lamb and several other people who had gained access, uh, uh, and, and as uh, Lamb explains in his affidavit, the uh, uh, vulnerability here could be, have been exploited by anybody on mm-hmm. the Internet, and you should assume that it has. And this vulnerability existed at the exact time that uh, the government was warning about uh, uh, Russian cyber intrusions. And this particular Secretary of State... Uh, uh, Kemp, Brian Kemp. Kemp yeah, when yeah. This particular Secretary of State rejected an offer by the Department of Homeland Security to assist in securing the integrity of, of uh, state election systems because he claimed, and it, now get this, he claimed that, that that offer amounted to an attempt to subvert the Constitution to achieve the goal of federalizing elections under the guise of security. It's so twisted. It, the explanation from the Republican Secretary of State is twisted. The, uh, the, the explanation since, frankly, from the Department of Homeland Security assuring the nation that no vote totals have been tampered with is itself twisted. They have been forced to admit they have no idea whether any election results were tampered with or were, uh, were in error. Um, so it's, you know, frankly, you got Republicans and Democrats alike here. This started in Georgia with a Democratic Secretary of State, as you note in your article. Democratic uh, Secretary of State Kathy Cox back in 2002. Uh, she uh, initially approved these systems uh, for the first time for the state of Georgia. And the fact that you had Democrats uh, who supported these kind of voting systems, that may be one of the reasons why Democrats still themselves don't seem to get this, don't seem to get the dangers in this country, it seems to me. Uh, you, you reviewed some of that information on Kathy Cox. What are your thoughts there? Well, it, it, the interesting thing is not just Kathy Cox, but, uh, you know, Diebold had the highest, uh, um, the, the highest quote, and they went with Diebold. But that's because the lobbyist for Diebold was her predecessor, uh, Democrat Lewis uh, Massey, who had been Secretary of State before she was, and he passed through the revolving door. 
So, you know, the, the, we were, talk, we're talking really expensive contracts. I mean, the system was, the original contract was $54 million, and then they, they added another, I think, $20 million to that uh, uh, when Diebold took over the whole system and privatized it for the 2002 election. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of reasons behind it, but the bottom line is that there is a, a mainstream media failure for the most part. I, I mean, one of the things mm-hmm. I... I uh, covered there was when, uh, you know, when you first uh, broke the story about the, um, uh, about the Princeton hack, where they, they showed how these, you know, the vulnerability in the system, mm-hmm. it was actually covered by Lou Dobbs, of all people, on CNN back in 2006. You hear all this coverage about, uh, you know, every day with MSNBC about potential Russian hacks, and yet nobody there bothers to talk about the fact that these systems are vulnerable to anybody, mm-hmm. whether it be Russian or anybody else, yep. and that there's no way to know whether the votes have been altered. One correction I wanted to make to something you said earlier, yeah. there was one person that tried to challenge and get an accurate count in several states, and that was Jill Stein of the Green Party. Mm-hmm. And when she, for example, sought a hand count of the paper ballots in, uh, uh, in Wisconsin mm-hmm. that could have made the difference in this, this election... Uh, what they did instead was simply run the paper ballots through the machine so you got the same machine count again on, on the so-called uh, recount so you had no verification of what the actual results were. Yep, and that was uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Uh, the attempt to count the paper ballots in those states where they exist, and there's not many of them in Pennsylvania, all of that was essentially blocked, either by law, they, the uh, Republicans and Democrats actually went to court to, to stop uh, the, the counting of those ballots, to count the forensic investigation of those machines, uh, or they just ran them through the same machines, the same computers all over again. So well, it's, yeah. One couple of quick points. One is, if you remember, that one of the states at, at issue was Pennsylvania, and we've done before with some counties in Pennsylvania used these same 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens. There was no forensic examination of the of the machines as requested by Stein. And the one other point I wanted to make about this lawsuit, uh, so that people don't think this is uh, uh, you know this sore loser approach, mm-hmm. is that the electors that are challenging this lawsuit. It's actually a multi-partisan lawsuit. There are Democrats, Republicans, and a member of the Constitution Party who all joined in in filing this legal challenge. This, uh, and all of this, by the way, is why I say it, 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 you know, it can't be up to Republicans or Democrats to count our votes to run our electoral system. We need a system that is actually overseeable by the people, by all the people, no matter what party they are. Because, you know, when Republicans feel like they get screwed by the the system, they need to be able to oversee the system, uh, the results as well. And I am still uh, dealing with, on a daily basis, happily so, uh, but dealing with people who are concerned about what happened last November, who are concerned about what happened in uh, in June uh, this year in that Georgia race, and are concerned about what will happen in our upcoming elections if people don't, you know, begin to figure this out and to begin to figure out what needs to be done. Let me take a quick break here. Ernie, stand by uh, a quick break, and we'll come back uh, more with Ernie Canning, legal analyst at bradblog.com, on his... 
kind of breathtaking article. Why do Georgia election officials insist on 100% unverifiable elections? I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with Ernest A. Canning, legal analyst at bradblog.com about his uh, article, Why Do Georgia Election Officials Insist on 100% Unverifiable Elections? It's a a detailed and uh, disturbing article, I think you will agree if you uh, give it a look, and uh, focuses not just on um, the uh, the history of these voting systems that were used in Georgia for the recent U.S. House election, but also on the election contest that has been filed against that U.S. House race between Democrat John Ossoff and Republican Karen Handel. She's already serving in Congress. She's been seated uh, even while this uh, election contest uh, moves ahead in Georgia state court, challenging the results given all of the security violations that occurred on the systems that were used uh, in, in the U.S. House race. Ernie Canning, you went through, back through a lot of Brad Blog coverage from over the past 15 years or so in that, uh, in that article. Um, what struck you from going back through all of those reports? And you went back to some of the, some of the stuff and uh, some of the whistleblowers and so forth that I'd reported on going back, uh, I think all the way to 2004, 2005. I don't know if you had read it previously or if you discovered it during your research, what were you struck by, uh, when you, when you sort of pulled this article together, uh, pointing the finger towards Georgia? Well, of course, you know, Georgia, we've got South Carolina that's mm-hmm. the system's just as bad as Georgia's. But um, when my interaction with Christina Torres, what it called to mind is when she's accepting anything the election officials tell her that's the, face uh, value. That's, that's the reporter from the, from the uh, AJC, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Right. Yeah. And, and what I wrote to her was what essentially what you're doing is engaging in faith-based elections, and you're simply, you're being asked to trust because he doesn't, and nobody's demanding that he prove that the that the vote tally is is accurate. You're at, uh, being demanded, uh, you know, basically to trust uh, election officials and their secretary of state, 
And what it called to my mind, and I think you'd be better off recounting it, is the story of Tony Achundo here in uh, uh, California. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I know the story you're talking Tony Achundo, and we've got audio somewhere in the archives for that. But just to recall it quickly, uh, that was... Tony Anjundo, the uh, the election director in Monterey County, California. I can't remember what the year was. I want to say 2000, 2005. 2005. Uh, and he was, that, uh, Monterey County had just got one of these 100% unverifiable touchscreen systems. They were moving the entire county to that system at the time and I was on a radio show with him and he was demonstrating I wasn't in studio with him but he was in the studio with the host demonstrating that touchscreen system uh, and in that case they had that little you know that little paper trail that the so-called VVPAT a voter verifiable paper audit audit trail that prints out with those machines and uh, I asked him I said well what happens uh, at the end of the day, if uh, there's a disagreement between what is on that little paper trail and what the computer itself reports. And as I recall, he said, well, Brad, uh, at that point, he said, uh, you just need to trust in your election officials as if, you know, we should just trust in this guy. Hey, he was elected. After all, we should just trust him. Um and yeah, then it was a follow-up story in, yeah. uh, about seven months later yep. in uh, Huffington Post, uh, which w had rather interesting uh, 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 results for Trust Me, Tony Achundo. Yes, he was. Uh, do you remember the number here of... Uh, 40, 43, uh, <laughs> uh, 43 criminal counts that he pled no contest to, including, I believe it was uh, a fraud, <laughs> embezzlement, uh, yes. you name it. <laughs> So this is the guy that asked you to trust him. Yep, this is the guy uh, we're supposed to trust our election officials. No thanks. I trust the people, not the election officials. Uh, I'll point everyone towards your uh, towards your story there at bradblog.com. Ernie, uh, why do uh, Georgia election officials insist on 100% unverifiable elections? And by the way, uh, an earlier one, another uh, week or so earlier, what will it take for Americans to understand basics of election integrity? I would also recommend that one. Ernest A. Canning, uh, really appreciate you joining us today uh, and for your uh, article and your willingness to go back over so much of my old uh, writing to pull all of this together. Uh, thank you, Ernie. Hope to talk to you uh, more as this uh, lawsuit in Georgia moves forward. You bet. You know, with all of that, uh, you would think that there would be more concern about those issues rather than what the Republicans are out there pretending is an issue. The president has this commission, the so-called Election Integrity Commission. It's really a voter fraud commission. When it comes to election integrity, they aren't looking at any of these issues at all. Zero, nada, none. They are looking at uh, a pretend voter fraud epidemic instead of looking to find out, are our elections accurately reported by our electoral system it's just amazing the lack of coverage uh, that this gets but we'll do it instead I guess my thanks again to Ernie Canning of bradblog.com thanks to our producer Desi Doyen and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's program you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com and my great thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. 
You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>